If you are following along, I will be reading from Acts chapter 17, 30, and 31. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commends all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Good evening. We are grateful that you're here tonight. It's been a beautiful day. We've had a great day together, and we're always glad to have the opportunity to come together to worship God and to study His Word. I appreciate the songs that we've been privileged to sing tonight, the prayer that has been offered, the reading of the Scripture. And tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. We're going to be talking about a presentation of the one true God. And we're going to be doing that in just a moment or two. I do want to express appreciation to each of you. I'm grateful for the church here, for the eldership, for those who serve as deacons, for every member. I think we have a great congregation of people, and we want to do everything that we can to reach out in this community to encourage others to become members of the body of Christ. We have a lot to offer, and I think sometimes we fail to see the positive, but we want to do what we can to reach out to make people know about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, I want to encourage us and challenge us to reach out to our friends, our neighbors, our family members, encourage them to come and to be a part of our worship services, our Bible study. I think that if they come, they will like what they see, what they hear. Uh, they will like those of us who are members here. And in so doing, I believe that we will fulfill the Great Commission. Tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. And we're going to be talking about a presentation of the one true and living God. When you look at the Apostle Paul, you have to understand that Paul was constantly preaching and teaching. That's what his life was about. And during his second missionary tour, Paul found himself in the city of Athens. And Athens was a city that was known for, I guess, being culturally elite. It was an intellectual center of that day and time. And so Paul found himself in the midst of this great hustling and bustling city. And it was on this occasion that he had the opportunity to point out to the people who lived in this city the nature of Almighty God. And so we're going to be looking at that in just a moment or two as we look at verses 16 and following. I want to begin tonight by saying that one of the things that strikes me about New Testament Christianity about Scripture is its relevance. When you look at the preaching and the teaching that took place in the first century, there was a reason for that. The reason, of course, is the gospel is God's power to salvation. It was true in the first century. It's true in the 21st century. I believe what worked then will work now. What we have to develop is the same conviction and courage that they had in the first century. We have to become committed to the principles of New Testament Christianity. We have to realize that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, that he died on Calvary's cross, and that through him we can enjoy eternal life. And so we have a message to share. And I believe that was the basis for all of the labors of Paul and the other first century saints. Now in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas, they have been in the city of Thessalonica, they were literally run out of Thessalonica. They came to the city of Berea, and from Berea, again, 
Problems arise, and so Paul makes his way to this great city known as Athens. And one of the things that stands out about Athens, it was what we would call a city filled with pluralism. In other words, they had embraced any number of gods. They were idolatrous. In verse 16, the Bible says that while Paul waited for Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the whole city was given over to idolatry. Now, I said a moment ago that the scriptures are relevant. When we talk about the relevancy of the word of God, I want you to think for just a moment about the culture in which we find ourselves today. Is it not in many respects like what Paul found himself in while abiding in Athens? I mean, if you and I were to take a trip to the Northeast, maybe we were to go to New York City, to Boston, to Chicago, if we were to jet to the West Coast and visit Los Angeles, what do you think we would find? I think in this day and time, we would find in many respects cities just like Athens, cities that have been given over to idolatry. You and I, we have to grapple with people today about the one true and living God. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 17, of course, while Paul was in the city, he debated with the philosophers, the great intellect, intellectuals of his day. And the Bible speaks of those Epicureans and the Epicureans, they believed that pleasure was the chief aim or purpose of life. And then also the Stoics. Stoicism was founded by Zeno. They believed that everything was governed by fate. And so here you have these, what we would call intellectual giants. I just, I just imagine walking into Harvard or Princeton or Yale, one of the great academic institutions of our day and time. And here are individuals who have all of this academic training, but in many respects, they lack the training that comes from the Word of God. And so here is Paul, and he's in the midst of all of this. And so what, did he, what does he do? Well, he sets before these people some characteristics about Almighty God. And I think that in some respects, it serves as a template for us today in how to deal with people in our world. Let me just suggest that as you look at Paul, and his preaching and teaching in the city of Athens. First of all, he talks about the greatness of Almighty God. And really he begins by underscoring the power of Almighty God. The God that we're talking about is not a God that was made by the hands of mankind. It's not a God of wood, of stone, or of some graven devices, but rather, it is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And so, having said that, look at verse 22. In verse 22, the Bible says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill. And it was on this place that the court met to decide certain religious matters. And as Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill, the Bible says that he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So here is Paul. He's faced with a city that has literally been given over to idolatry. Now, I said a moment ago that we live in a culture today, we live in a world today where people have embraced any and everything. I would never have dreamed 25 years ago that Islam would be what it is today. There are people today who are followers of Islam. There are some who are Buddhist, others who are Hindus. There are all kinds of religions out in the world today. We talk about these Eastern religions. Well, people have a lot of concepts about God. People have a lot, of, a lot of misconceptions about the nature of Almighty God. And so here is the Apostle Paul. He's standing before these great people in the city of Athens, and here's what he says. Number one, you need to understand the greatness, the power of Jehovah God. What about Almighty God? Well, let me suggest that he is the creator. That's what Paul said. Listen to him in verse 24. God who made the world and all things therein, seeing he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Who made the heavens and the earth? Let me tell you who made the heavens and the earth. God did. Now you can go to Harvard, you can go to Yale, you can go to Princeton, and it may be the case that you will not get that answer. You remember what Paul said to the Romans, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We have people that have PhDs in our, in our society today. They have terminal degrees, and yet they know nothing about our Creator. The world itself is evidence of an almighty God. The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. When I step outside the walls of this building, I can see evidence of an almighty God. And Paul is simply saying here, God is the one who made the world. That's what people in our world today need to understand. God is their creator. God is the one who framed the heavens and the earth. Who put the sun in the heavens? God did. Who put the moon in the heavens? God did. Who is the one that put the stars in the heavens? God did. That may seem elementary, but I promise you there are a lot of people today that miss that concept. You remember what the psalmist said? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Here's what the Hebrew writer said in chapter 3, verse 4. Every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. God is the one that made the worlds. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is as true as when it was written by the hand of Moses by inspiration. It was true then, it's true today. People may not accept it, people may reject it or repudiate it, but the fact of the matter is God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. Furthermore, God is the one who created man, who created man to inhabit the world. We're not here by chance. We're not the result of some cataclysmic explosion. We're not the products of evolution. Now you may not find that in a science textbook, but you and I, we are the products of an almighty God who framed us in his own image and in his own likeness. You remember what Moses said in Genesis 1, 20, 26 and 27? 
when he recounted the creation story, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God is the one who made man and the woman. God created man from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Moses said he became a living soul. Genesis chapter 2 at verse 7. God is the one who made us. The Bible tells us that we are the offspring of Almighty God. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said to those dwelling in Athens. He said, God is the one who has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Paul here is saying God is the one who made man. God is the one who made the races. It doesn't matter if you're black, white, red, yellow, polka dotted, it doesn't matter. God is the one who made you. And so there are people today that have difficulty understanding that we have been made by the hand of an almighty God. Well, we have been. In Psalm 139, the psalmist talks about how we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Who made us? God did. There are a lot of people in our world today, they need to pause and, and reflect on the fact that we're not the products of evolution. That we're not the products of some cataclysmic explosion. But we have been made by the hand of Almighty God. So Paul said, God's the one who created the world. He's the one who created man to inhabit the world. Not only is God our creator, but he is our sustainer. The Bible tells us that it is in him that we live and move and have our very being. What is it that holds our universe in check? It's God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 that God upholds all things by the word of his power. How grateful we ought to be that the Apostle Paul, when he was in the city of Athens, introduced those people to the greatness of God. We live in a day and time when people need to be introduced to the greatness of God. They need to come face to face with God the creator and God the sustainer. There's a second thing that I want to share with you as we look at Acts chapter 17. Not only does Paul cover the greatness of God, but he talks about the goodness of God. God is the one who has lavished on us all of the provisions that we enjoy in this life. The Bible tells us that it is in him that we live and move and have our very being. He would say he gives all life, breath, and all things. Did you know that God is the dispenser of every good and perfect gift? James said every, every good gift, every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The psalmist said, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. God is the one who has blessed us immeasurably. Count your blessings. As the song goes, it will surprise you what the Lord has done. All of the great blessings that we enjoy in this life. Now, here's what I want you to see from this. When God created the world and created man to inhabit the world, he didn't just put us on this globe without taking and interest in our well-being. There are some that are in the insurance business. 
and they will offer policies from time to time, particularly in the realm of health coverage. And they will say this policy has womb to tomb benefits. Well, let me tell you what the benefit of being a child of God is. The child of God enjoys great blessings from Jehovah God. We have the peace that passes all understanding. But as we think about God being involved in the affairs of mankind, God is with us from the womb and beyond the tomb. In other words, when they place our mortal body in the tomb, that spirit has gone where it's gone back to be with God. Who's caring for that spirit? God is. Do you remember what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7? When death occurs, he said, the body returns to the dust from whence it was taken, and the spirit to God who gave it. God is the father of our spirit. So, having said that, I want you just to imagine for a moment, living without God. Wouldn't that be a terrible existence? Think of, think of the blessings associated with knowing that God is with us on a daily basis. To know that as a child of God, his presence is with us every day. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. What shall man do unto me? God is with us. Furthermore, we have the opportunity to bow in the presence of God, to acknowledge him as our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, to look to him for help, as we live here on this planet. I said a moment ago, imagine if you can living without God. One of the great benefits of living with God is knowing that he is there in times of difficulties, in times of distress, and in times of death. Let me just back up and say this as we think about the difficulties of life. If you think you can get through this life without experiencing some kind of heartache or pain or sorrow or adverse circumstance, you better think again. This world is replete with human suffering. You can go from the East Coast to the West Coast. You can go from pole to pole. And what you will find in every sector of society is that people have problems. Job said, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Life is filled with problems. And yet we know as a child of God, we can look to him for support and comfort. When I think about some of the difficulties that we face in this life, and then couple with that the distressing situations that we find ourselves in, I'm reminded of the plight of Job. That poor man suffered immensely in this lifetime. He lost 10 children. He lost his wealth. He lost his health. And yet, here's what Job said. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. To know that God is with us. Here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 46 at verse 1. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Did you catch what he said? A very present help in trouble. God is with us, God is for us when we face the difficulties of this life. And then death. 
Death takes a toll on the human family every day. And yet, to whom can we turn in times of death? I believe we can turn to the Lord, can't we? That we can look to Him for guidance, solace, support. There are so many passages of Scripture that deal with the subject of death. When you read Genesis chapter 5, one of the things that stands out is you are reading a commentary on the existence of man. Because the phrase is used over and over again, and he died. Here's what the Hebrew writer said. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this cometh the judgment. Death will come to all unless Jesus comes first. And yet we can look to the Lord, we can turn to him in times of death. There are a lot of problems, a lot of heartaches in this life, and there are people whose lives are out of control. There are people whose lives are unraveling before them, literally. And yet I believe that God has the power to put those lives back together. And so I want to, I want to encourage all of us to remember that God, the God that we read about in Scripture, not only do we read about the greatness of this God, but we read about the goodness of this God. I'm thankful that we serve a creator who is, who is good. That's what the psalmist said in Psalm 100, for he is good. There's a third thing that I would share with you, and that is the graciousness of our God. One of the things that piqued the interest of those who lived in the city of Athens while Paul was there preaching and teaching was Jesus and the resurrection. I believe that the graciousness of Almighty God has been demonstrated to the human family through the person of Jesus. Jesus is a manifestation of God's grace to fallen humanity. Were it not for Jesus Christ, we would be without hope and without God. When you begin to look at the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens, as he preached Jesus and the resurrection, why do you think he preached Jesus? Why do you think he preached the resurrection? I believe he preached Jesus because he understood that without Jesus, men and women can be saved. Here's what the writer of Acts said in chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. If we want to be saved, we have to be saved in Christ. And so here is Paul. He's faced with this pluralistic mindset. Here are people that have given themselves over to numerous idols. And Paul is saying, look, you need to understand there is one true living God. And not only is there a one true and living God, but this one true living God has a son. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is the second member of the Godhead. Jesus was the agent by which the world was made. He is the one who sustains us today. Furthermore, he is the one who has the power to redeem us. I suspect that Paul talked to those people about Christ. And I would imagine that he talked to them about how Christ died for their sins. When you read the scriptures, when you read the gospel message, really the thrust is this. Christ died for the human family. 
It's about salvation. That's what this book's about, salvation. If you take salvation out of, the, out of the Bible, then really you've stripped the Bible of its power. The Bible is about redemption. It's about reconciliation. It's about bringing men and women back to their creator. Over and over again, the scriptures talk about how Christ died for our sins. Paul said, we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was intent on preaching Christ and him crucified. He understood that Christ paid the ultimate price for the sins of the human family. And without the shedding of that blood, men and women would be lost. When Paul talked to the church at Ephesus, he talked about those who are outside a covenant relationship with the Lord. And he said their status, their state in life, they are without hope and without God in this world. You ever thought about what it means to be lost? Sometimes we talk about children that have been abducted. They're lost. We don't know where they are. A frightening thing. I can't imagine the anguish that some parents must experience when they find out their child is gone and they have no idea where that child is. That child's lost, gone. And some may never return. I remember years ago when I was living in Nashville, there was a young couple, they were brother and sister, and they were, they were residents of Dixon, Tennessee, which is about 30 miles, 35 miles outside of Nashville, west of Nashville. The brother and sister were on interstate, and if I'm not mistaken, they ran out of gas. And so the brother told his sister to wait in the car, he would go get help and be back. When he came back, she was gone. To this day, they have never found that girl lost. Now you just imagine what it means to lose a child. We talk about losing objects, losing precious possessions. There's something worse than losing a precious possession. That something is to lose the soul. I can't begin to fathom what it means to be lost. I don't want to fathom what it means to be lost. We read about the subject of hell and we talk about the danger of losing one's soul. I'm not sure we really understand it when it's all said and done. Because maybe if we really understood it, if the world really understood the magnitude of being lost, people would get their lives right. But Paul talked about the Christ the one who died for sins. Jesus died for our sins, but the Bible tells us that though they placed his body in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, three days later, what happened? He was resurrected from the dead. Do you know what makes Christianity a viable religion? It's the resurrection. You strip Christianity of the resurrection, and let me tell you what, we have nothing. We're wasting our time. Here is the Apostle Paul. He's talking about Jesus and the resurrection. And in just a moment, as we look at verse 31, he's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's going to say that the resurrection validates the judgment to come. You want assurance of the judgment to come? Look to the resurrection. Well, the Bible says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. 
according to the spirit of holiness, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. So Paul talked to these people about the graciousness of Almighty God. And let me just share with you this. The graciousness of Almighty God is reflected in verse 30. And that is God commands all men everywhere to repent. God wants people to repent. Why is that? Because God's in the saving business. God's interested in the souls of men. God wants you to be saved. He wants everyone to be saved. The only way we're going to be saved is to come to the knowledge of the truth, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. The only way we can be saved is submit our will to His will. To be submissive to His commands, to obey the gospel, and to live a faithful life. If we do that, guess what? We're in the body of Christ. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 3. We have the hope of life eternal, Titus chapter 1, verse 2. All of the blessings and favors that we enjoy in Christ. And so the graciousness of Almighty God reflected over and over again. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let me tell you what people in this nation need, need to understand. People in our nation today need to understand that God wants them to get their lives right. People all across the globe need to understand God wants them to get their hearts right. Why is that? Well, we're going to be introduced to that reason. Look, if you would, at number four. And this is the guarantee of Almighty God. What is the guarantee that has been given unto us by Almighty God? What is this great promise? It's the judgment to come. Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in verse 30. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why, Paul? Listen to him. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. Now listen. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Remember what I said a moment ago? What is it that validates the judgment to come, the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just share with you very quickly some things about the judgment to come. We talked about it this morning, but I want to just very briefly make a couple of observations. And let me, let me just point this out in connection with this. It's interesting to me that wherever Paul went, in many instances, he talked about the resurrection. He talked about the judgment to come. When Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, you know what he talked about? The judgment to come. We shall all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what he said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In Romans chapter 14 verse 10, he said, We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. When Paul stood before the Athenians, he talked about the judgment to come. When he stood before Felix, he talked about the judgment to come. Why is that? Because Paul is saying you better get your life right. You better understand that there is an almighty God who is going to hold you accountable for the way you live. Very quickly, the Savior who will judge. King Jesus will one day judge us. Jesus himself said in John 5 verse 27, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. You and I, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now you can go back and look at the Roman world and there are men that have that had the opportunity to sit on the throne and to serve as Caesar. And guess what? They're dead and Jesus is still Lord and he is still reigning on his throne. And one day they will bow before him. 
I don't care if you have a key to the White House. I don't care if you have, I don't care if you have a degree from Harvard, Princeton, Yale. I don't care if you are a sitting senator or a congressman. I don't care if you are a mayor. I don't care who you are or where you are. One day you will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. And you need to think about that. And that's what Paul is saying. You're going to bow before the judgment seat of Christ. The Savior who will judge and then secondly, the standard by which we will be judged. Paul said that he's going to judge the world in righteousness. The standard by which we're going to be judged is this book, the Word of God. There are a lot of people who need to know something about this book. There are a lot of people that ought to be here tonight that ought to be interested enough in the Lord to be here tonight to learn more about this book. We've got to encourage them. We've got to try to do everything that we can to get them to where they need to be spiritually. There are a lot of folks, to just be honest, they're not ready for the judgment. They don't even know this book that's going to judge them. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Paul said in Romans 2, 2, the judgment of God is according to truth. He would say in Romans 2, 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Do you have secrets? Do you have things locked away in your closet that nobody knows about? Are there things in your life that no one knows but you and Almighty God? Are there things in your life that you're ashamed of? You know that you've done certain things. You've never made them right. Did you know that God will hold you, hold you accountable for those things one day? Every secret thing will be exposed. The Savior is going to judge us. The standard is His Word. When's all that going to occur? When Jesus comes. When he descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, then we'll stand before him. At that point in time, here's what's going to happen. We're going to be sentenced. Some are going to go to heaven, and sadly, some are going to go to hell. What is it that's going to take people to hell? It's sin. That's what it is. I mean, we can say it doesn't exist, we can write it off, we can camouflage it, we can do a lot of different things, but the bottom line is, sin is still sin. And the only remedy for sin is the blood of Christ. Paul preached his heart out to people, I believe until the day he died. And I think he did that because he loved people. We preach, we teach because we love people. We want people to be members of the church because the church is the body of Christ. It's the ark of safety. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to come to Christ. We want you to understand the nature of the one true living God. We want you to see that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. And that if you will come to him in faith, repentance, confession, if you'll be immersed in a watery grave of baptism, every sin will be washed away. And then just live faithfully. It may be that you're here tonight, maybe you're not faithful to the cause of Christ. Maybe your life's not what it ought to be. Could we pray with you and for you? James taught, confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another. Could we do that with you tonight as we stand and sing?